You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 48 of the Common Descent Podcast. Doo-doo. Today, we are talking about a very popular group. It's been quite requested. And as you might have been guessing, we'd get to. Today, we are talking about sharks. We are going to talk about the evolution of sharks today. No small matter to discuss uh, no, there's a, there's a lot of sharks. <laughs> we'll get into that. There's a lot of them, and they've been around for a long time, and yet, and they were weird. This episode was requested by a number of listeners. Uh, Lydia, Amanda, and Jonathan all made requests at one time or another for us to talk about sharks, and so we shall. For today's episode, what we're going to focus on is how we got to modern sharks, you know, what what we see through the transition of the fossil record. We're not going to be able to focus on every group because there's nine current major groups of sharks today. Eat, like I know we always say this could be multiple episodes. Each one of those really could be a different episode. They're all very different. They're all, they all have long histories going back to, you know, some before and some to the time of the dinosaurs. Like, these have long, long histories that we can talk about. So we are going to get a very, a very good overview of what sharks were doing up until they became the sharks we know. Before we get into the episode, some quick announcements for you. Very quick, as longtime listeners already know, our podcast is heavily and in fact entirely funded by our lovely patrons and... If you join Patreon at a certain level, we will shout your name out on the podcast. And so I shall welcome to the Patreon, John. Thanks for welcome, your contribution. John. Thanks for hopping on. Yeah. Now, on a, a side note to listener participation, we are asking not just for money, but your <laughs> questions. Uh, we mentioned it last episode. We have put out a Q&A Again, we want to do another episode like we did uh, earlier this year, where we are going to offer for you to submit questions to us that you would like us to answer, and we will do a, a end-of-the-year wrap-up episode answering as many questions as we're able to answer. So we've put out the form for you to submit these questions, and it is available easily on Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. So give it a look. Yeah, it'll be another sort of mailbag yes. episode, and we we like answering just those questions. So, and this we'll we'll release this at the end of the year, late yes. December. Yes, and it, we are looking forward to it already. So, yeah, we are peaking at the December present before before it's done. So, I mean, we we've been yes. we've been glancing, <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for announcements. Which brings us to the next section. As usual, we like to begin our episodes with some recent news and to spark things off. I think I will hand it over to you, David. Well, thank you. I'm going to talk about elephant birds. Cool. That's neat. Because a new study came out that was making the rounds. Uh, all the paleontologists were reposting it on the internet. 
that has concluded, or at least found evidence to suggest, that the elephant birds were nocturnal. Oh, that's cool. Which is cool. So this is a study that dives a bit into paleoneurology by Christopher Torres and Julia Clark, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And we'll put up a link to a blog post in Discover Magazine by Gemma Tarlack. Elephant birds, we've mentioned before, uh, back in episode 40 about Madagascar, mm-hmm. are the giant flightless birds that lived in Madagascar up until just a few centuries ago. In a recent news, it might have been the last episode, actually, a recent bit of news concluded that one species of elephant bird was, in fact, the largest known bird mm-hmm. ever. Yes, big one. However, for a very long time, it's kind of been sort of inferred that elephant birds lived at least somewhat like ostriches and emus and large flightless birds today. Yeah, the the other long-legged, long-necked terrestrial birds. Yes, the other paleognaths, which is the name for this big group uh, that includes all of our favorite flightless birds. And so whenever you see elephant bird reconstructions... They tend to be during the day. Yeah. Well, that might have to change. This study took a CT scan of elephant bird skulls and examined brain endocasts. Basically, the shape of the brain case. Yes. Which tells you about the shape of the brain. They looked at two species of elephant bird, Apiornis maximus, the big one, and Apiornis hildebrandi, and they zeroed in on two parts of the brain. One is the olfactory bulb which is the portion of the brain that controls smell, sniffing. And the other were the optic lobes, which are the portions of the brain that are in charge of vision. So olfactory bulbs are interesting because in living members of this group of birds, the paleognaths, ratites, you know, ostriches, emus, cassowaries, and so on, bigger olfactory bulbs are seen in forest dwellers. That makes sense. Helps you navigate and forage through the forest, I suppose. What they found is that the two species had a different size. A maximus had larger olfactory bulbs than the other species, which might suggest that the two species were living in two different environments. One in the forest and one perhaps in more grassland environments. Interesting. But the more exciting part that's been hitting the headlines is that they found that the elephant birds had extremely reduced optic lobes. This is something that is also seen in the closest living relatives of the elephant birds, the kiwis. Oh, that makes sense. Kiwis live in New Zealand. They have reduced eyesight, hyperdeveloped olfactory smelling, auditory hearing, and somatosensory feeling senses. So they are getting their way around largely on other senses besides vision. Like Daredevil. Like Daredevil. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they're nocturnal. So the fact that they're seeing these this reduced vision in the elephant birds led these authors to suggest that perhaps elephant birds, these giant, 12-foot-tall, super-heavy, ridiculous birds, were also night dwellers. They even suggested that reduced vision may have been a feature of the last common ancestor, of kiwis and elephant birds, that it's something the two of them inherited and each adapted to their own environment. It also seems, at least if these are the two groups to go on, 
that this feature of reduced vision has cropped up now twice in flightless, presumably nocturnal bird species, bird groups, living on islands with very few predators. Oh, that's, yeah, that is a really interesting connection. So it's a fun little, paleoneurology is always cool when you can study the brain and infer behavior and how an animal interacted with the world around it is a lot of fun. It's easy to just think that, you know, animals have brains and they tell the animal what to do. And if we just look at the outside of the animal, we'll get the answers we need. But you can actually learn a lot by looking at the shape of the brain because that interprets what the priorities are for processing the information they're getting and for the skills that they're focusing on or the abilities yes, yes. that they're focusing on. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I also really enjoy the idea of nocturnal elephant birds because it makes me think of I've seen like on YouTube and in documentaries videos of elephants walking around at night and for anyone who doesn't know elephants are surprisingly quiet walkers they have padded feet so like they don't you know we always show in documentaries like when sauropods the long-necked dinosaurs walk around it's that boom 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 yes uh, yeah, dramatic score elephants don't do that when they walk around it's just it's just stealthy you don't hear these thumbing you know booming steps and so like when there's elephants walking around a place at night, all you hear is every now and then like a thing get knocked over. That's <laughs> like trees going. And then all of a sudden the that they do like, it's yeah, just and like then there's an elephant there. And then there's just an elephant. Like it'd just be like you if if we were to have had backyards at the time that these birds were just like you going out and like turning the light on and they're just seeing these giant birds all turning their heads toward you <laughs> like silently yeah. in your backyard, just in the middle of the night. <laughs> I like that this is going to start influencing art. Yes. That's exactly what I said is they need to take uh, some, some uh, cellophane, some dark colored cellophane and put it over all the pictures. <laughs> it's a very big moon. Very cool. Well, my first bit of news is about Parasaurolophus, and this is a very famous and popular dinosaur. It's one of the hadrosaurs and the uh, ornithopod dinosaurs. Classically, you know, these are the duckbills is what they're called. But this is the one with the really long pompadour, the crest, Elvis. Yeah, off the back of the head. Off the back of the head, that really long, arching, tubular crest. Famous for being discovered to be hollow and connected with the nasal passage and therefore thought to be used for vocalization, for making sounds like a trombone. Well, this new research suggested that different species likely were making different sounds according to these shapes. Oh, cool. Now, this research is not yet published. It was presented in this year's SVP, uh, like some of our news from last time was. Research is done by Jason Bork et al., and the news we'll be looking at is by Laura Gagel in Live Science. Now, Parasaurolophus dinosaurs, there are multiple species of Parasaurolophus, this is the genus, were dinosaurs that were successful during the Cretaceous. These had those notably exaggerated head crests, and they had these air passages that just, it wasn't just that it was hollow, it had pathways inside that looped back on itself very much like a trombone like it air went down and then came back as it went 
from nose to mouth or vice versa. Studies have shown that it would have worked very, very well for amplifying vocalization. The researchers looked at this vocalization specifically in five specimens of a currently unnamed species of Parasaurolophus. Now, the reason it's unnamed is not that it hasn't gone through that process. They have not yet been able to confirm whether it is a new species or an already existing species because there it could be a juvenile or sexually dimorphic male or female, which is hard to determine. But they looked at these specimens. They CT scanned the skulls to get the inside structure of that crest in that air passageway and were able to simulate what the sound, at least what pitch the sound should be at. Uh, they even reconstructed some uh, hypothesized soft tissue because that's one of the things that we're missing. We don't know exactly what sound they would be making, even though we have part of the quote-unquote instrument because vocal cords don't fossilize or at least have yet to. And the shape that is inside that tube would be different with the flesh and with the, the yes. tissue and stuff that's actually in there with the bone. They have like a whole bunch of uvulas just all over it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'd just be trills all the way. I'd be awesome. I I I, <laughs> I have often when people ask stuff like if you could know one thing about dinosaurs, knowing what sound these made, it's always really close to the top of my list. Yeah. They were able to, through this simulation, determine that it would have been a kind of low pitch of about 56 hertz. Now, I don't know about enough about hertz to tell you exactly what that would sound like. But <laughs> the higher your hertz, the higher your pitch. The lower your hertz, the lower your pitch. It's pretty simple. This would put it between two already studied species of Parasaurolophus. Parasaurolophus walkeri, which is one of the well-known ones, had a very low-pitched at 48 hertz, called, according to the same kind of research. And then Parasaurolophus kirtocristatus had a much higher pitched vocalization at about 75 hertz. So this is seeming to indicate that different species may have had distinctly different, at least pitched, calls. They also were looking at the breast, the, the passageway on this one, and saw that it is very, very complex. It's actually got a lot of loops and extra features that extend it farther than some other crests they've seen. They said that the passageway inside, if you were to stretch it out, would almost be three meters long. Wow. So it's a long passageway. The way they put it is if it breathed in at a meter per second, it would take three seconds before the air exited <laughs> <laughs> as they were breathing. That's like blowing out. It's like when you breathe... In, in or out of a straw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that delay before the fluid gets mm -hmm. to the end. And this this structure is what seems to have been deepening the pitch, which suggests that they were, that Parasaurolophus crests were actively trying to deepen. And if their findings, the, the these extra findings are also found to be consistent among other species, it may end up that the previous species mentioned are also a little bit deeper than previously thought so huh. they had very deep voices evidently and were actively designing their crests to achieve that this is cool to me because it makes me think of a lot of modern animals that are vocal frogs and birds that also you have different species that make different sounds in particular the fact that i remember learning about how 
certain species, you know, crickets, frogs, especially in the night, nighttime animals, will aim for frequencies or pitches that aren't already occupied in their environment. Yes. So if multiple species are calling out into the ecosystem at the same time, you can hear your own species. Well, it's like tuning into radio stations, is that waves, radio, you know, radiation is just constantly permeating our our world through the the radio towers that are pumping them out, but they're pumping them out at different frequencies so that when you refocus your radio, you only pick up one of the station's projection at a time. It's the same concept, but with mating sounds, which you could call love songs that. I've seen studies that look at the ear structure of prehistoric animals to determine what kind of frequencies they could hear. Oh, that's cool. I don't know if this has been done with Parasaurolophus or other dinosaurs, but I'd love to see if we could do that with them and see, are they attuned specifically to pick up the sounds of their species? Yeah. I bet they are. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Oh, we're so we're exploring dinosaur skulls today. Yeah. So we got we got nighttime and now we've got deep voiced. What do we have <laughs> next, David? Uh well, funnily enough, I've got more dinosaur studies here now this is now this study technically has to do with dinosaur fossils but it is less concerned with the dinosaurs themselves and more concerned with how soft tissue preserves in the bones this is research by yasmina wyman et al in nature communications and there is an article we'll put up in the blog post on yale news by jim shelton which is where the I don't think it's a, a press release. It is. It looks like it's an article written by this guy for the Yale News, but it's still through Yale, so it's probably uh, a little self-congratulatory <laughs> in the way a press release might be. Yes, but in any case, it's a good. It's a good description of it, so we'll put that up. As we've discussed on the podcast before, one of the things we have, as paleontologists, come to realize—not just the two of us, but all of us. Recently, in recent decades, is that you can get soft tissue preserved in bone, dinosaur bone, other prehistoric creatures, as far back as tens to a hundred million years old. This is a bit of a surprise, because for a very long time, it was always just kind of assumed that you wouldn't get soft tissue, but you can get these structures similar to that, that appear to be the remains of cells or blood vessels. You get little protein remnants people have been able to pull out of there and this has caused a lot of discussion about how that's happening we're, we're pretty sure that that's what we're seeing how why why does this happen <laughs> how did you how did you live to get at an answer these researchers tested 35 fossil samples bone eggshell teeth and decalcified them, which basically means they dissolved the hard stuff away. They dissolved it specifically targeting, we're going to dissolve away the bone material, the, the hard stuff. And then they examine what popped out. Get rid of all that pesky bone. Yes, this is how you get soft tissue from bone. This is probably one of the reasons it took so long for us to notice it, is that you have to dissolve them in order to get this <laughs> stuff out, which nobody wanted to do. What they found was interesting is that there was a difference in preservation based on the kind of environment the fossils were buried in. Fossils that came from environments with dark sediments, 
like deep marine environments, left behind pretty much just goo. But fossils from light sediments, like sandstones and limestones, left behind these little bits of brownish soft tissue. Now, the big chemical difference they focused in on between dark sediments and light sediments is that the dark sediments are reducing environments and the light sediments are oxidizing environments. Oh, okay. Some quick chemistry reminders. <laughs> the difference between reducing and oxidation is just what direction the electrons go in. A reduction a reaction causes a substance to gain an electron. If something is oxidized, it loses an electron, often to oxygen or some other chemical that can be donated an electron. So in shorthand, a reducing environment often is oxygen poor and an oxidizing environment is often oxygen rich or oxygen or something very much like it. Essentially that the type of environment you're preserved in is affecting how these proteins are preserved that they're not, we're not seeing them in those reducing environments. When they threw these remnants, the stuff that fell out, into the spectroscope, they, they performed what's called Raman spectroscopy, they found that the soft tissues were modified into variants, variant proteins, variant shapes, that are oxidation end products. That these are proteins that have indeed been oxidized, into a form that is hydrophobic, which means it resists water, the, the, the sorts of effects that normally break down proteins in water, and also makes them more difficult for microbes to break down. So being oxidized into these forms, which are AGEs and ALEs, which stand for long, complicated, sciencey words. Well, look at the article if you want the, the, the details. Turn, transforms them into a form that is more resistant to the things that would normally be breaking down soft tissues. They also did some experimental procedures where basically they were fossilizing, right? Replicating the sorts of conditions that would cause soft tissues to break down and found that if there's oxygen present, you can generate these end products, these particular types, shapes of these proteins that allows them to be preserved for longer. So they have seemingly, perhaps, gotten at part of the answer of not only how soft tissues are preserved by being transformed by this chemical reaction, but what kinds of ancient sediments we might look for to find more of them. That's very cool. I like it because the side effect of it making them more resilient isn't just the typical thing of this sediment better preserves an element, you know, that it just like shale is better at preserving soft tissue because it's so fine and it can get into very fine details. And it, but this is that it chemically transforms it to make it harder to destroy. Yeah, it, this we got into it's a bit of chemistry. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a, that's a side effect that I never would have guessed was the reason we were finding it more there. I would have just assumed that it that sediment was less less detrimental. You know, it was just less harsh on it for some reason. That's very cool. Yeah, this is this is the the, the burgeoning field of molecular paleontology, which is a term. If if you went back even fifty years, and, oh yeah. 
be like, hey, are you guys looking forward to molecular paleontology? They'd be like, all right, well, you need to cut back on the drinks. Get out of here. You're crazy. <laughs> Go back to your bones. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, my last news piece to round things out and, and give us some variety is about dinosaur eggs. Oh, I was hoping we'd talk about dinosaurs. This yes. Episode. Yeah. So I wanted to get those in. Uh, this is research that shows coloration in bird eggs nowadays is actually originally found in dinosaur eggs and not its own development. Uh, not something unique to birds, but that they inherited. Absolutely. Now, the research we're looking at here is uh, from a, a researcher named uh, Yasmina Weinman. Oh, uh, that's the same person <laughs> that... I just yes, that's it is. same same leader. That is the first time that's ever yes, happened. We've had the same author twice. You said it, and I went. Why does that sound really familiar? <laughs> well, Yasmina, this is your you've been your lucky day. You're featured lucky you. You get to be on our world famous podcast. You researched cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and people talked about it in time for us to put on the podcast. The news is from Jim Shelton and Yale News. Um, oh no, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, pigmented eggs is something we see very commonly in modern-day birds. And originally, it was thought to be a bird trait that had evolved multiple times on its own among bird lineages. That it, that it popped up throughout their evolution. Interesting thing I didn't know about bird pigments. The pigments in bird eggs are only red and blue. And that's what makes up all the variations of bird colors in their eggshells that you see. And the reason, heavily, is for them to blend in with the nesting environment. Most birds do not cover their eggs like like alligators or turtles burying them. So they're exposed whenever the parent is not brooding over them. So having them hidden makes them, hopefully, harder for predators eat you know there's some really cool ones that look almost identical to the rocks that are found around them the researchers here analyzed 18 dinosaur egg samples using laser microspectroscopy this is a way to study the makeup of the eggshell without destroying it which is nice yep same way they studied those proteins as you it's a chemical you, you're a chemical analysis and they were looking specifically for the two pigments and found them in some of the Ooh. eggs so this is what they were trying to figure out is was this something that came from just birds or was it something that was seen in dinosaurs and they found it in eggs from the u many raptoran dinosaurs which is a group of theropod dinosaurs that includes things like troodons and therizinosaurs and the dromaeosaurs these had those two pigments so they were at least somewhat we don't know the pattern but they were colored somewhat at least which suggests the researchers suggest is a trait that might have come up with open nesting behavior that this and for dinosaurs ground nesting typically at least for bigger ones this open nesting behavior became necessary to then be able to hide your eggs with this coloration right why would you need color if they're buried underground exactly and the reason this is interesting both the article and the, the news points out is that this is once again a time where we see that what we thought was a bird characteristic was really a dinosaur trait yep that's what i was gonna say add this one to the list it's just once we we keep thinking it's like oh no that's a bird thing no 
No, no it's it's what they've thing. held on to. Yep. But this is another <laughs> one of those. So once again, much like we were saying with uh, the elephant birds, I look forward to seeing art now. That's yeah. I, I want to see some speckled eggs. I like this because it just keeps adding to the reasons that if you went back to the Cretaceous, you would have no way of delineating dinosaur from bird. It's just like big five foot turkeys. It just there would just be it just the same thing everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're all laying colorful eggs and they're open nests and they have colorful feathers they're and they're tooting. singing songs. Yep. Yep. It's just it's just this beautiful spectrum. That's such a cool. It it really it really brings dinosaurs into focus. Absolutely. Like, I, you know, I think for a lot of people like their old scaly dinosaurs, mm-hmm. as is evidenced by the fact that they just refuse to stop putting them in movies. <laughs> but for me, the fact that you can look at a bird and put those features onto an extinct animal, that's like that. What a cool ever-growing list of ways that i can make extinct dinosaurs very relatable to me well and that's the phrase you just used is the one that i look forward to becoming the norm is instead of saying non-avian dinosaurs and instead of saying dinosaurs birds i look forward to a time when we say well extinct varieties of dinosaurs showed these characteristics uh, yep. Our modern dinosaurs show these characteristics because that's what we have. Like, yes, we called them birds before we knew what dinosaurs were because that <laughs> word, the one word existed before the other. But that we these are dinosaurs that are running around and the dinosaurs that used to be running around were bigger clawed versions, clawed up front versions of these. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. Uh, it's a testament to how much time you and I spent looking at each other's news pieces this time. <laughs> that we both we knew we had done dinosaurs all yep. across the board. Although they're very diverse studies, which yes. I think is really cool. Like you could, all these different things you can study in dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> legitimately did not realize nope. Nope. <laughs> that we had chosen uh, studies from the same author. Yes, yeah, so, so you all know we we each pick our own news sources and usually we'll have moments where We'll, we'll kind of convene and say, these are what I was looking at. And the other one can say, these are what I was looking at. And sometimes we'll have moments where it's like, I was also looking at that one and we will trade or we'll rearrange. And usually we'll try to hit on what the ones we think are important or hit on a variety. This time we ended up picking the same ones, but agreed that they were diverse enough that it wasn't too bad. We did not, we did not catch the, the extra similarity. Did not look deep enough. <laughs> Whoops. Well, that's okay. Good. Good news. With that, with that uh, goose egg, <laughs> we wrap up the news and get ready to talk about some sharks and how they came to be. So sharks, as many of you know are a group of predatory fish, oceanic nowadays, marine, though there are some that tread into less salty waters, that dominate the tops of food chains in almost all areas of the ocean. There are rivals. Orcas definitely push them out of wherever orcas decide to go. (laughs) (laughs) But these are what we... Picture when we think of the ocean as 
top of the food chain. Yeah. Let's talk about what what a shark is and where they fall within the the fish family tree because they are fish. That's something that I always like to clear up. Sharks are fish. There's not fish and sharks. There's fish and then sharks is a weird kind of fish. Yes. All fish are weird though. That's <laughs> <laughs> just an aside. I work with them, I can say that. Oh, they're super strange. So, you have two major groupings, the osteichthys and the chondrichthys, which are your bony and your cartilaginous fish. The bony fish is what you think of when I say fish. Yeah. Goldfish, trout, sturgeon, bass. These And these are typically, not all, but those ray-finned, those thin-finned, which is the majority of fish nowadays, those fish. Fish with bones. Fish bones with bones. Are. That's what osteichthys means. Chondrichthys is the cartilaginous fish, which means instead of having calcified skeleton, they have a cartilaginous skeleton, which means it's made of cartilage. It's pretty straightforward. The descriptor for chondrichthys actually has more factors than just the cartilage skeleton. These are cartilaginous fish that are jawed vertebrates with paired fins, paired nares, nose holes, scales, and a heart with its chambers in a series. So this is not just any fish with a cartilage skeleton, because that would also include like hagfish and and some of those other weird jawless fish. Jawless fish. Things that can't even truly bite. (laughs) These are jawed vertebrates that have these features. This means that they are actually separate from all other jawed vertebrates. This is a lineage. The outgroup. The outgroup (laughs) from all other jawed vertebrates. Just to put it in perspective. So this episode is going to get kind of weird. We're dealing with a group very different from our own and even just from other fish. That goes back a long ways. Oh, yeah. This This is the most distant from humans group we have spent any episode on except for cephalopods. Yep. Now, to break things down, chondrichthys is broken into two subclasses, your elasmobranchi and your your holocephali. Now, elasmobranchs are the ones we're going to be delving into. Your holocephali is the chimeras or ratfish or ghostfish or spookfish. And they have other weird names. These are a weird group that are very shark-looking, but with very long side fins that they flap like a bird not like a stingray they're not flat they just have these big fins they flap and these big kind of creepy dead looking eyes that just stare like a doll's eyes like a doll's eyes these they just have these big eyes and they have this kind of dopey little mouth and they've got a long ribbon like tail which is why they get the ratfish name uh typically deep water not as common nowadays as other sharks but that's not how it always was elasmobranchs elasmobranchs are the class that we are going into and it is broken up into two super orders batoidae and the salacomorpha the batoidae is actually really well named because it is your wing-shaped guys your batty guys is the way i think (laughs) of it this includes rays skates and sawfish the flattened members yeah the flappy they have flappy swimmy guys their pectoral fins which are the two ones on the side or underneath up front of fish pectoral pecs that have flattened out to become the main fins for mobility in the rays. Skates and sawfish still have a shark-like tail, but they have a front and f- front half. And so these are your typically bottom-dwelling, typically flat members of Lasmobranchs. Selecomorpha 
are your sharks. True sharks. This includes true sharks. Proper sharks. In which there are nine modern orders and four extinct ones that did not make it till today. Very quick tour of the sharks. We will we will go through to give you an idea of who these are. Now, as I said, each of these could be their own episode extremely easily. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, I would not have a lot trouble of sharks out there. filling an episode with any one of these. There might there might be a couple that I might have a little trouble with. The cow sharks and the frilled sharks might be difficult, but I doubt it. Going down the list, the cocariniforms are your what sometimes known as the ground sharks. And these are uh, most of the sharks you think of. This is this is the the most common group. This includes the requiem sharks, which includes things like bulls, tigers, blue reef sharks, black tip reef, uh, the oceanic white tip, and all of those very common sharks that come to mind. You also have the cat sharks in here, which are a lot of times bottom dwelling smaller sharks that nestle around smaller areas the hammerheads are in here hound sharks all fall into this group this is distinguished by an elongated snout and a nictitating membrane which means that covering of the eye and so they they have a protective cover for when they go into attack because they can't close their eyes so they bring a shield over it so these are when you think shark typically you're thinking one of these except for one exception which we'll get to in a second (laughs) (laughs) the the one shark everyone thinks of when you say shark is in a different group the heterodontiforms are your bullhead and horn sharks these are things like the port jackson shark that's very popular they have a very complicated muzzle their mouth is full of all these ridges and loops and they've got very complicated jaws and teeth for crunching on hard-shelled things all the time and they're typically once again bottom dwellers but they also have very big fins they're they're able to kind of walk some of them your hexcaniforms are the cow sharks and frilled sharks which we'll talk about a little bit more detail toward the end of the episode because these are your weird sharks that break the gill rule that we're about to go over they have extra gill slits compared to most sharks and they are more ancestral they tend to have a much they have much older features from ancestral sharks than other modern sharks the lamniforms are where a lot of the famous sharks are. There's only 15 species. This includes some of my favorites, the goblin shark, basking sharks, megamouth shark, which are two of your filter feeders, threshers, short-finned and long-finned makos, and the great white. These yeah. are often known as the mackerel sharks. Uh, a lot of them are known very well for speed, for fast swimming, high-speed, high-activity sharks. The Great White and the Makos are some of the most active and fastest sharks out there. And so these are the Ferraris, so to speak. These are distinguished by large jaws and ovoviviparous reproduction, which means (gasps) they give live birth. Live birth! Yes! It's cool. Sharks are really neat because some of them lay eggs, some of them give live birth. And it's typically smaller ones lay eggs, bigger ones give live birth, but there's there's a lot of variation depending on who does what. Reminds me of an even cooler group of animals. Ha <laughs> uh, we ha A lot of the old, earlier sharks looked like the cool group of animals. They're very long and <laughs> slender. <laughs> the erectoloboforms, which are your carpet sharks. These are some of the uh, 
I don't want to just characterize the group, but the, these are very friendly sharks. These are very <laughs> docile, very well-natured sharks. It's just kind of the way it goes, except for one who is not. But these are... His name is Fred, and we don't talk <laughs> oh, about him. Gosh, Fred. These are your carpet sharks, and they're named that because many of them are on the bottom, and they also tend to have carpet-like patterns in their skin. Nurse okay. sharks, zebra sharks, the wobegon, which is the one that's more nasty but like nurse sharks and zebra sharks typically eating hard-shelled stuff and they spend a lot of time on the bottom they can sleep down there and then the whale shark is also in this group which is on the whole opposite side of being the biggest fish in the world today and a big filter feeder that swims out in the open ocean so (laughs) yeah that's a cool group the pristioforiforms are your saw sharks these are sharks with a elongated nose with serrations down the side for catching food Similar Different to the, from soft fish. Yes. Similar to soft fish, but soft fish are grouped in with the rays and skates. And I'll yes. go over in just a second how to tell the difference between those. Basically, the gills are on the bottom. It's a ray or skate or soft fish. The gills are on the side or the top. It's a shark. Cool. That That's as simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard. <laughs> the squaliforms are your dogfishes and your rough shark. Dogfishes are sharks, typically small. Typically deeper waters, but not always. You'll remember those from your comparative anatomy class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you probably <laughs> probably looked on the inside of one of these. The squatiniforms are your angel sharks, similar to the Wobegon in that they are flattened bottom dwellers that are ambush hunters, but different body shape. And then we have the cladosalacaforms are one of our first extinct group of sharks that we're going to mention. These were some of the earliest predecessors to modern sharks. And they had typically elongated bodies with spines on both of their dorsal fins, the fins on the backs. They had barbs on those fins. Very sea serpents. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of early sharks had a very eel-like body. They were long and thin. They didn't have torpedo body shaped. You'll notice that as we go through. The Xenocanthida is a group of sharks that are interesting. They're long-bodied, mostly freshwater sharks. Oh, extinct. Yes, extinct group, and they had a serrated spine that extended backward along the back, along the top of the body from the neck. And so they they once again had that very eel-like body with a, a fin that ran down the body instead of dorsal fins. The hybodontiforms are also the hybodonts, is a group of sharks closest to the neoselecians, which are modern sharks and rays. These are distinguished and named for their conical teeth. This was a group with rounded teeth instead of the typical sharky, you know, flattened edged tooth. Like a dolphin or a croc tooth instead of the blade-like tooth. Which is weird. And they were successful for quite a while. And then the the Simorita are actually chimeras that likely gave rise to the earliest of the sharks. And many of these looked like sharks if you were to have seen them you're like yeah shark it was like they're actually chimeras but sharks came from this group of extinct chimeras so between 14 orders of sharks that's a lot of diversity yes that's a a expansive successful group and there's every single one of them has a a weird member or two or yep hundred (laughs) so they have been diversifying quite a bit and been around for quite a while now we're going to go through their history 
briefly by period we're going to jump through. But I first wanted to make sure that we had an idea of what a shark was, what it meant to be a shark. Because I know we all probably have a mental image, but there are key features. Much like when we talked about dinosaurs, a group of animals has descriptors that describe the group. Right. And it's helpful because there are a lot of things that are like sharks, but not sharks. And a lot of things that are called not sharks, but are sharks. Yep. What What, what is a shark? What makes things a shark? As we said with the Lasmobranchs, those features, the paired fins, you know, jawed vertebrates are all true here. Paired nares, chambered hearts, all that stuff. The cartilage is always a feature. This is actually a big feature for sharks because it's part of what helps them stay buoyant. Cartilage is more buoyant than bone. And one of the other major features of sharks is they do not have a gas bladder, an air bladder. Oh, a swim bladder like a fish swim bladder, exactly. Buoyancy control. So fish, most bony fish, not all, but most have a gas chamber, a swim bladder that they can fill with air to adjust their buoyancy to swim higher or swim lower in the water column and hover at different depths and different densities. Sharks don't have that. They have a big liver full of oil that huh. helps them be close to neutral buoyancy, but it's not as good as the, splim- the swim bladder. It's not as efficient. But it, along with the cartilage, make them fairly neutrally buoyant so they can hover. But most sharks that are active swimmers typically have features to help them stay in whichever part of the water they're needing to. Many of them have fins that act like a plane's wings and give them lift while they swim. They are actively having to fight gravity while they swim because otherwise they would slowly sink. Others, like the sand tiger shark or ragged tooth shark, which is the better name for them, (laughs) Uh, the more accurate name Uh, swallow air in the stomach to act as a mock swim bladder Mm -hmm. and then others like the nurse shark are negatively buoyant they sink on purpose because they live on the bottom so they want to benthic they benthic so they they sink down and they stay down when they swim and you can watch this they actually have to swim upward and then they can get going at a horizontal, but they actually have to like do a oh, yeah. helicopter takeoff where they go straight up <laughs> and then go off. They have or to they... get off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so like I've watched our nurse shark before when it wants to kind of stop in a spot, it has to swim upward. Very much like a, a you would watch a fish do at the surface when it's wanting to look at something. Uh, so they have to push against gravity. Now sharks have multiple rows of teeth, which is something they share with most of the skates and rays that they replace and new teeth come from the back, push the old teeth out the front. They can go through thousands of teeth in a lifetime. The max number that you'll typically hear is about 30,000 in a lifetime of a shark, like pumping out teeth, which becomes important because when you have a cartilage skeleton and then you have hard teeth, that's what fossilizes. Yes. So we know most sharks by their teeth, which is weird. One of the big ones is gill slits. Sharks and fish both have gills that function in a very similar way to pulling air out of the water, but shark gills are not covered like a bony fish's gills. So most sharks nowadays have gill slits, external openings for their gills on the side of the head or neck, and there's going to be typically five gill slits. There are some that are an exception to this, and fossil sharks definitely had exceptions to this because this is the modern trait. Many older sharks had more. Most fish have five gill slits as well, but theirs is covered by a operculum, a big covering on the side of the head that is muscular and can pump the water over the gills when the fish is stationary, like a bellows 
so you can't see the gills. Yeah. Like when, when you see sharks. When I was a kid and I would draw sharks, I always liked drawing those little little gill slits. Little lines down the side. With a fish, you just draw one little curved line that is that operculum. This is yeah. the part that you like often see. a manhole see. cover. Yeah. Just this is the part that uh, when people go fishing and they pick up their catch, they always hook it behind that big flap behind their head. Yep. That's what they're putting their finger in is the operculum. This means that sharks have to breathe differently than fish. Fish can pump it like a bellows. Sharks can't do that. Bony fish. We keep, we keep yes, differentiating sharks and fish. But we've explained true. this. You know what we mean. I was about to say. I, I'm, I'm, I did I, it too. <laughs> yeah. Osteichthys, chondrichthys. But bony fish, sharks. I'm going to say fish and sharks from here on just because we got a lot to go through and i'm gonna <laughs> we don't have time for all those extra words I, i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna miss them at some point most people know the fact that there are sharks that have to keep swimming to breathe right keep the water moving over the gills this is true for a small portion of sharks this is actually not the norm for sharks most sharks have the ability to pump water over their gills through something called buccal ventilation which is when you bring water into the buccal cavity, the mouth cavity, and then you close it and push it out the gills. So if you've ever seen the thing of a shark and they're literally going and opening and closing the mouth and it looks like they're chewing almost, it's that they're literally eating water. They're pulling it in their mouth and then pushing it out the gills instead of getting into the tummy. This is very common. Nurse sharks are... Very famous for this because they sleep on the bottom and many other reef sharks do this. In some sharks, you can clearly see, and it's very noticeable in stingrays, so if you ever get a picture of one of those, that they actually have an opening just behind the eye called the spiracle, which ancestrally was a the first pair of gill slits that is reduced down to a little hole. And this is a, a place for the water to come in before going over the gills, and they can pump it through there. Some sharks have reduced this and Certain sharks have lost it, uh, namely things like the requiem sharks we mentioned earlier. These sharks that have lost it completely are the ones that are most known for having to swim to breathe. And basically, they have to keep swimming with their mouth open for water to enter in and come over the gills. And we call that ram ventilation because they're ramming the water down their throat with their mouth open. Now, there are sharks who do both. There are sharks who typically swim to breathe and then can sit and gulp, but it may be more work for them. So there's not like a hard line between these. Some of the last cool things about sharks that set them apart from the bony fish and uh, other fish is their scales. Sharks have what we call placoid scales or dermal denticles. And the reason it's called that, dermal means skin, denticles means teeth. These are literally identical in construction anatomically to teeth they have a pulpy cavity on the inside fed by blood vessels with a dentine covering and they're covered in those so they have toothy skin this is why when you pet a shark from head to tail it's smoother and then when you pet it the other way it can give you like a rug burn if it's a big shark little sharks don't do that but big shark and they call it shark burn for the people who do research <laughs> and get rubbed by a big shark that they're working on these actually have little divots that help capture water as it flows over the skin, like the divots on a golf ball, and it makes them more efficient, faster, and quieter swimmers. So they can be stealthier and swim using less energy. And then their fins are rigid, not flexible, movable rayed fins like a bony fish. They also have claspers, which we mentioned in our pla uh, yeah, which we mentioned in our placoderm episode. 
and these are the paired mating structures of the males of both sharks and rays once again these are something they share across elasma ranks that are between the back pelvic fins the ones under the tail that are used for locking in during mating and then they have the ampullae of lorenzini which are the little pits on their face filled with gel for sensing electricity that lets them find things like a metal detector even when they're hidden under the sand because sharks are awesome <laughs> so that's what makes a shark it's kind of a long list because once again they're separated from us by quite a bit and they're very different from your other quote-unquote normal fish they've got a lot of interesting features one of the ones that makes them very obvious that they are separate from other jawed vertebrates their jaws aren't actually attached to the skull looking at shark quote skeletons yep. is super cool it's really it's just it looks not at all like what you expect a skull to look like. And that's why sharks are able to, when they bite, you'll notice their mouth actually moves forward. It rotates forward to bite further up the face. So they have a mobile... Like, we talk about snakes having a flexible jaw. This is a jaw that literally moves within the body. Like, it's crazy. So that was a bit of a whirlwind through what a shark is and what their grouping, their taxonomic distribution looks like. So at this point, we're going to go ahead and jump into the historical part and look at where did sharks come from and where have they gone? What have they looked like throughout the history of Earth? And to start things out, we're going to jump back to the Silurian. And the Silurian period dates between 443 to 419 million years ago. And look at a group called the Acanthodians, which are not sharks but if you were to look up fossil sharks, these are going to pop up in your search because they are close in certain characteristics. Now, in the oceans at the time, we're looking at sea levels that were particularly high, and we start seeing the first corals. It was warm. Things were stable climatically, and fish are really starting to diversify. One of these groups is the Acanthodians, also commonly known as the spiny sharks. They're not sharks, once again, but I'll go over why they were called that. Now, this group is kind of a mess, which is not too surprising because this is a very old group of fish. They have very diverse characteristics. Originally, it was thought that they split between two clades, and these gave rise to the bony fish and the, cartil the cartilaginous fish. More recent findings have shown the fact that it is paraphyletic and actually gives rise to chondrichthians, the cartilaginous fish, while bony fish have their ancestry somewhere among placoderm, the armored fish ancestors. So not nearly as cut and dry as they thought it was. Part of the reason that they thought this is because they share traits between both bony and cartilaginous fish. And it's a weird combination of traits. Some of these include the fact that they were superficially shark-shaped. They look like a weird shark when you see them. Uh, and some of these have been fossilized in complete uh, layers, you know, where the whole body was fossilized. So you do, we do have some where we can see them all. They have streamlined bodies, paired fins, and strong upturned tail, that, that shark crescent-esque tail. So very shark-like. They had cartilaginous skeleton, but then they had bony bases to their fins. And they also had spines on the fins. 
thus spiny sharks. They had a varying number of fins, so they did not have the same as sharks. They wasn't consistent. And they did have a bony flap over the gills that was not an operculum that we see today, but did the same kind of job, apparently. So it was an analogous structure, convergent evolution. But they had the rows of teeth for replacing front teeth with back teeth. So you can see a mixture of features. Now, the ancestors to sharks likely arose from this group, but it's not completely clear because the earliest evidence we have of a shark-like creature from this time is just scales. These were scales found in Siberian deposits 420 million years ago, roughly. There's some that might be dated to an earlier specimen. And this specimen that is known from these scales has been given the name Elegostolepis. As I said, that, that's about as much information as I can give you. It had shark-like scales and showed up during the Silurian, but we don't know much else about it because we don't have anything else from it. So sharks or shark-like ancestors were around during this time, but we don't know much more about them than that. As we've discussed many times, the, the earliest period of any group of animals evolution is always very difficult to pin down just because there's fewer of them and they're harder to identify so sharks are no different yeah and we get a lot of that with shark ancestry where there's a lot of things where it's you're definitely shark like we're not sure who you're definitely related to but you're definitely getting closer to our sharks, you know, modern sharks. And so yes. we definitely see a lot of those trends going on. These spiny sharks, the, the shark uh, wannabes, actually were fairly successful. They lasted from the Silurian to the Permian. Like, so they were around for a while. And they were originally marine and then moved mostly to being freshwater during, during the Devonian. And then they went extinct in the Permian, likely because that was when bony fish started to really take over and they they were pushed out yeah they just couldn't couldn't contend. compete we mentioned them in episode 45 permian extinction and at this point we can now really enter into the true evolution of shark ancestors heading toward modern sharks so we Enter in with the Devonian, dating from 419 to 358 million years ago, was when things started getting warm and arid. During this time, we see some of the earliest prominent land plants, seed-bearing plants showing up around this uh, during this period. And we start to see some of the first sharky things, like things that we can start identifying as very shark-like features. The next entry in the list, very much like our last one, is not well known because it's only from a few teeth. Leonatus is from the early Devonian. About from 400. Sparta. Yes, this is the Devonian. And about 400 million years ago, we find the first shark teeth that we can call shark teeth. Ooh. And these are teeny tiny, four millimeters, and they are two-pronged which is interesting. So they, they hmm. are forked teeth. And that's a that's about what we have. We don't have anything else from Leonidas <laughs> that that's we got some pronged teeth, but 
they are similar to Xenacanthus teeth, which we mentioned that group earlier. And these were your freshwater, very, very long-bodied, kind of eel-like shark ancestors that appeared later on in the Devonian. So if we draw from that similarity, then it may have had a similar habitat, similar lifestyle, potentially. Now, Xenocanthus, it had a dorsal fin, but it was more of a dorsal spine almost that came off the back of the head area, and then a ribbon-like fin that ran down the entire length of the back and then around the tail and back up toward where the anal fin would be. Very eel-like. That fin that just encompasses the whole tail and back of the body. And these were freshwater, which is not what we're used to with sharks today. Oh, interesting. Do you remember that news piece we saw recently that said that a lot of the early groups of fish yeah. sort of near shore? That's that's interesting. Maybe Absolutely. These were nearby to the earliest members of these groups. That's a good point. That's a really good point, actually. Uh, some of them actually got kind of big. There was just some that were three feet in length, so meter mm. long. So, I mean, not, not huge. But that for the Devonian. Yeah, not tiny. Yeah. Now, you do start to see some things that we would actually want to call sharks that are showing up here. The I love the name of this one. The Antarilamna is the laminid shark of Antarctica. And if you remember the laminoids that we were talking about, which has great whites and goblin sharks, two of the cool ones, this is an early shark showing some features. Not saying it's the same group, but it is. we're starting to see kind of recognizable things here. This is about 380 million years ago. Still very eel-like, uh, according to the heads and spines and fins that we can see. So it seems like it still had that very elongated body, but it's starting to be a little more recognizable. And then we get to some that start to look like sharks. Uh, Cladosalaki is a member of the Cladosalacidae family that we mentioned. This is a two-meter-long These specimens got hefty (laughs) as long as me. But these now have torpedo-shaped body and equal-sized dorsal fins on the back. Short spines in front of each dorsal fin. Five gill slips, large eyes. So you're getting very... Like a doll's eyes. Like a doll's eyes. Very shark, very shark-like now. But we have some weird things. So one of the key things that most modern sharks have that... You definitely notice, but you probably don't think about when you see a shark, is that their mouth's underneath. Their mouth is on the bottom of the head. Right, right, right. Some sharks, it's pointing down because they're bottom feeders, but it's always underneath. They've got that, the eyes, the big nose, and then the mouth underneath. Yep, that that pointed rostrum that sticks out. And ancient sharks didn't have that. Like an eel, their mouth was up front, so this mouth was situated at the front of the snout instead of oh, underneath weird it it's in not... the shark uncanny valley yes it had not moved back yet and we even have some that show that we have with uh partially swallowed or or eaten prey and showed that it ate its prey tail first which suggests it was swimming its prey down meaning it was an active chasing predator uh, as opposed to ambushing or or tricking them in some way so by the end of the Devonian, we are seeing 
active swimming torpedo-shaped shark ancestors that are probably living similar to the way we think of sharks living today, where they're predators chasing their prey down using a streamlined body. And it sounds like by this point, we have a good fossil record. Yeah. These are... Whole bodies, we got Mm -hmm. fins, we got teeth and mouths and part, you know, digestive remains even. So cool. But they were not yet bosses. The placoderms were still ruling at this time. So Dunkelosius would have been big boy on the block, the big armored, shielded, blade-toothed predator that got to the size (laughs) of a great white. Remember them from episode 29. Absolutely. So these were the ones ruling things when it came to the food chain. But sharks were there in the background or at least there on the sidelines in some extent. Not doing bad. Yeah. but, But around. That's something else that we'll notice as a trend with sharks. It's not until fairly recently that sharks step forward as big-time players. They're, they're constantly present, but they're usually fairly small and not the, the toothy predators we think of today. Now, we get into the Carboniferous, 358 to 298 million years ago. This is known by many who research them as the golden age of sharks. Oh. This is this, when... is this is where all the stuff they keep in their canon. Yes, yes. Like when they make <laughs> movies about sharks, they want these sharks. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. They're like, you didn't mention so-and-so. Why would... Yeah. <laughs> this is when shark diversity really expands. During this time, by the end of the period, 45 families of sharks swam in the Ooh. seas. it's a good time to be a shark they were doing great now this was when chondrichthians which includes rays and skates and chimeras became some of the largest predators in the ocean this is by this point the placoderms have died off so we no longer have armored fish to compete with or at least those big predatory armored fish there are still fish about and a diversity of them but now cartilaginous fish are able to step into dominant predator role here and the ones who are ruling the roost is chimeras actually oh interesting during this time not sharks yet not sharks but most of the chimeras that you would have seen here in our notable were actually looked very much like sharks you would have thought they were sharks yes very near sharks very near sharks same kind of body design torpedo shaped stiff paired fins even lobed tail that's good for fast swimming. Some of these you see listed as awesome fossil sharks all the time, but they're not actually sharks. They're shark relatives. Now, remember, from these ancient extinct chimeras, we do eventually get ancestors to true sharks. Mm-hmm. But the next two I'm going to mention aren't. So, two of these are the ones that you see. Like, I mean, almost every time you Google fossil sharks, these are within like the first pictures other than the big one we'll mention later on stethacanthus is probably the one that i see pop up most often just because it's one of the most bizarre oh yeah this was and there are multiple members within this overall group but the the famous one was about two feet long looks like a shark still has the mouth further up not not quite oriented underneath yet but the dorsal fin was shaped like an anvil flattened on top and had toothy structures all across the top it's so weird it's like a brush and its purpose was our next animal 
<laughs> we don't know. We have no clue. For the for the purpose of Stethacanthus's strange dorsal fin, please see the section on Stegosaurus spines, <laughs> yes. plates, and the uh, Shalatus elephant. Yeah, Dimetrodon sails. Yes, yes. <laughs> Weird. Some people have suggested that it might be sexual dimorphism, uh, which is a feature we see in some of these ancient near sharks. So that's cool. that that is possible. Uh, one that's probably more popular, or or at least the more uh, uh, picturesque one, is Helicoprion. This is your world tooth, quote unquote shark. Yes, the this world is the tooth one with the spirally tooth row, the buzz saw. That yes. in the lower jaw, these sharks had teeth that are in rows, but it's one single row that stays fused instead of dropping off and is in a concentric spiraling circle. And I've heard multiple ideas as to what it was using it for. The one that I hear most often is that it was using it to slice into soft-bodied prey and cutting it up into the upper jaw. Not a small shark. Uh, these actually got Not pretty sizable. Yeah. Not, not a small fish this was a, a big predator it was actually probably one of the largest during the carboniferous size estimates for these sh- these uh shark-shaped chimeras are up to 30 feet long wow with the largest tooth disc being 18 inches across wow if i remember correctly is, is i think that's the only part of helicoprion that we've found that's about it because it's one of my favorite things to show people. If you look up this animal, you will find artist reconstructions putting this whirl literally everywhere on the body it can fit. Yep. <laughs> no, people had no clue what this weird thing was doing, and it baffled people. It was very popular for quite a while for it to be spiraling off the bottom lip, like the worst reverse hair lip that you've ever seen. But now we know it's situated within the bottom jaw uh, and slicing up into the upper jaw cavity. Now, as we continue in our Carboniferous trip, we get to some true sharks. Falcatus falcatus, genus and species name, is a small, not very big, the males were only about six inches long, species of shark from the order Simoridia. One of the most interesting things about these sharks, so now we are in sharks, we're outside of the chimera. True sharks. True sharks, extinct order, but these are super weird because they have very definite sexual dimorphism. Oh, cool. And in such a cool, weird way. So when you look at the males, they are about six inches long, so not very big, and they have a spine on their head that angles upward and then forward. Huh. If you've ever seen the front of certain military aircraft, they have this little deedly bob off the nose sometimes that comes off at an angle and then straight forward for refueling. It looks a lot like that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a little refueling rod on the head. And there is a fossil. The reason they they have gone with that this is sexual dimorphism is there is a fossil of a female falcatus. That is larger, not much, just a little bit larger, but larger, which is normal for elasmobranchs. Typically, females are larger, which is just normal in most groups of animals. Mammals are weird. 
This larger female seems to be in the act of mating as it is latched on to the spine and arching huh. around to in seemingly a mating position. Oh, that's fascinating. Isn't that cool? <laughs> that's great. It was a handle. A little hand just to hold on to. A little love handle. Yeah, it was literally a love handle. And the other reason I like this is that, not with a handle, but that's how sharks mate today. They use claspers for internal fertilization, but they bite each other to hold on. Yeah. Female sharks very commonly have thicker hides to resist the teeth of the males that are going to have to hold on to them while they are mating. Because if you're in the water and you're moving around, you got to stick together. It's really hard to, to, to dock up. Unless you can grab on. And then now we enter the Permian. Now the Permian is not too bad for sharks up until the end. Permian period running 298 to 251 million years ago. This is where we see the the Hybodus sharks. And this is the Hybodonts that we were talking about earlier. This is known as humped tooth sharks. And these are those conical teeth. They appear. Oh, yeah, the weird ones. The weird ones. These appear toward the end of the Permian, and they actually last through the extinction, which is impressive. They disappeared late in the Cretaceous, so they did pretty oh, well, at least so through they, the Mesozoic. They survived the end Permian extinction and the end Triassic extinction. Yes, they did. We'll actually talk about that in a little bit. Sharks do surprisingly well when it comes to the extinctions. During the Mesozoic, these are surprisingly successful, and they can be found in shallow seas all across the world. Most didn't grow more than two meters, so just over six feet. They had that classic shark streamlined shape, two dorsal fins. They not only had weird conical teeth, they actually had two different kinds of teeth, which suggests a very wide diet. They had sharper teeth for catching slippery prey and flatter teeth for crushing most likely shelled creatures. Interesting. Now, we see this in some sharks today, uh, bamboo sharks, which we have at the aquarium and things like the zebra bull shark and similar sharks to those have little grabbing teeth up front and blunt teeth in the back these evidently had a similar setup kind of going to them they did have some weird things they had a bony blade on their dorsal fin that was most likely defensive and we do see claspers here so now we have definite internal fertilization going on within our sharks cool things are getting very sharky as we mentioned earlier our acanthodians disappear here, and a lot of the weirder sharks and shark-like chimeras and stuff like that also disappear at the end of the Permian. So a lot of those near sharks. We've reduced that diversity down to more familiar things. Absolutely, and that becomes very clear as the Mesozoic goes on. When the Triassic kicks in 251 million years ago, rayfin fish have begun to really diversify and taking over the seas now. So bony fish are the dominant fish and the fish we recognize are now starting to, or fish that we would recognize as very fishy, are coming around. And along with them, sharks diversify, very likely feeding on this now abundant food source. This, though, is when a new competitor comes in. The marine reptiles in the Mesozoic yeah. come in as the dominant predators. And sharks aren't pushed to the side as much as they have it in the past, but they still aren't able to really just force their way in until a little later on. Right. Well, ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, mosasaurs, marine crocs, these were like 
10, 20, 30, 40, 50 foot yeah. predators, that's hard to that's hard to compete with that. This was quite the competition to go up against. Now, in the Jurassic, this is where we see some really important updates with sharks. So this is a very important time. Jurassic is 200 to 145 million years ago. And in this time, we see 12 new shark groups evolve. Oh. One of our groups, the cow sharks, show up 190 million years ago here. So we start seeing modern groups. Recognizable modern groups are showing up in the Jurassic. Now, sharks have flexible jaws. They start having those mobile jaws, and they start moving under the face here. This all allowed them to take on bigger meals, have a more dynamic bite. They also allowed them for crunching and suction feeding, which nurse sharks and stuff like that use. It's a very vacuum-like mouth. They also start to see a lot of flat teeth during this time for crushing harder prey. So we're seeing that develop as a norm, and that's very normal among sharks today. And if you remember from the episode 45 about the Permian extinction, one of the features that changed after the extinction was a difference in what kind of organisms were living on the sea floor. Absolutely. And you get a lot. So the, the, it's, these sharks may have adapted to be feeding on this new host of shelled invertebrates and mm-hmm. such on the bottom of the oceans. And we also see an uh, innovation with their fins. Tail fins become more adapted to higher speed efficient swimming these crescent like tail fins the heterocercal tail fins as they're called start to really show up here and so now indicating that we are seeing faster more efficient swimming sharks so we're getting more complex jaws and we're getting better swimmers within this time we also see the first members of bull sharks carpet sharks saw sharks dogfish and angel sharks So we see a lot of modern groups popping up during this time, and many of the Jurassic groups, of course, the ones we see today, but many Jurassic sharks survived into and through the throughout the Cretaceous. And in the Cretaceous, we see some really important stuff. 145 million years ago is the beginning of the Cretaceous. It ends 66 million years ago with a very famous extinction that we discussed in episode five. Now, during the Cretaceous, we see modern-looking sharks. At this point, sharks look like sharks. You would you would be able to go into the waters of the Cretaceous and very easily be like, yeah, that's a shark. That's absolutely exactly what I expect to see. This is really about 100 million years ago that we start to see large, fast-swimming, modern-looking sharks. We see the rise of the crow sharks during this time. This is the Squalacorix sharks, as they're known. They lived between 80 and 70 million years ago. These were big members during the Cretaceous. They had a variety of sizes. They were typically up to seven feet long. So now we're having people-sized sharks. These are good-sized predators. Uh, They were smaller than many of the marine reptiles, so still not pushing them out. But they were getting big enough to take on medium prey. One of the interesting things is that bones of larger animals during this time have actually been found covered in crow shark bites, uh, which suggests that they may have been heavy scavengers. Oh, interesting. Uh, a couple of other big-time shark players during the Cretaceous, a shark known as Tychotis mortoni, which was around at least 
89 million years ago, discovered in Kansas. Oh, in that western interior seaway. This was a big shark. This How shark, big was it? 30 feet long. Big well, enough for oh, you? That's, that's, yeah, no, that'll do. <laughs> that's big enough. That'll we do. <laughs> it's at this point, we're starting to see some of those big sharks show up. 30 feet is not, that's bigger than the biggest predatory sharks today. Absolutely. And only we only know it from the jaws. This is where it gets weird. The teeth in these jaws were flat and crushing. Oh, what were they eating? <laughs> right? I don't know. Although, this was the time yes. of abundant ammonites. Which is what makes me wonder. I actually talked to a, a ammonite paleontologist at an event at the aquarium the other day because there's a whole bunch of cephalopods, uh, cephalopod researchers at the cool. aquarium. And she was asking whether I thought the stingrays with their crushing jaws would be able to take on ammonites, which I said yes to. And then I oh, came yeah. across this in my note taking and went, I should let her know because this is probably what this one was doing. <laughs> That's awesome. So big crushing toothed shark. And then we also had the Ginsu sharks, not the knives, but the sharks. <laughs> Cretoxyrena mentelli, which is a 20 foot long, so not quite as big, but still great white shark nice. size. This is still pretty good. That did have sharp teeth up to six centimeters long. Ooh. And the fossil for this included part of the spine and 250 teeth. So this was a toothy shark with sizable teeth. And these teeth have been found embedded in plesiosaur and mosasaur bones. Nice. So it was either scavenging or hunting medium and smaller marine reptiles. So the tables are beginning to shift. <laughs> the late Cretaceous would have been a time, because you had all three big marine reptile groups. Mm -hmm. You had, well, you had plesiosaurs, mosasaurs had shown up. Yep. Ichthyosaurs were kind of out uh, uh, on the way, I believe, by the late Cretaceous. But this this is the time period where you've got all the big three and now also big sharks. This was a terrible time to be a fish. Oh, absolutely. And the interesting <laughs> thing to me is that unlike the placoderms, they didn't wait for the marine reptiles to ex go extinct. Sharks are like shoving their way into the competition, yes. <laughs> which is, yeah, that's just, it's like turf war going on in the yeah. ocean. You'd all better hope for an asteroid. Yeah. We see some modern groups show up. The frilled sharks and laminoid sharks do show up in the Cretaceous. And we see some of the earliest of the ground sharks, the uh, cacaraniforms. So cool. some of those big groups are now showing up. Then 66 million years ago, an asteroid hits, and sharks do pretty okay. All those big green <laughs> reptiles go away. Yep. Almost every dinosaur in the world goes away. Sharks, not so bad. Approximately 80% of shark, ray, and skate families survive that extinction. So they basically come through. And in fact, when you look historically, sharks definitely get hit. And a lot of the big extinctions. So, I mean, we definitely see them get hit, but we see them bounce back after extinctions much more successfully than your average group of animals. Interesting. They were there at the end Devonian. Yeah. When the Placoderms vanished. At the end Permian, when the Acanthodians and those earlier Chimera things vanished. At the end Cretaceous, when we lost the marine reptiles. They've just been hanging out. They've been doing really well. And one of the ways that we've noticed they, that researchers have noticed they survive and bounce back is that, especially after the Cretaceous and after a few of the other extinctions, they go to deeper waters. Oh, interesting. And they adapt to deeper waters. And this is when we start seeing, after the Cretaceous, the first lantern sharks and cookie cutter sharks that are deep Ooh. sea sharks. 
And so evidently going down there is a, is a reaction to these extinction events and is allowing them to survive low oxygen periods of the ocean. So sharks have figured out a way to handle global catastrophes fairly well. And then we get into the Paleogene, 66 million years ago to 23 million years ago. We see some of our first filter feeding sharks. Today, we just have the whale shark, the basking shark, and the megamouth. But we start seeing other filter feeders during this time. Reduced teeth and gill rakes to catch small food. Hammerheads show up. Hammerheads are actually interesting because according to DNA evidence and research, they are believed to be the last modern shark group to evolve. So they are our most recent type of shark to come around. Huh. Yeah. And fun fact, the DNA shows that they likely started large and gave rise to smaller hammerheads. That's, and that's unusual. Smaller hammerheads have apparently evolved multiple times, at least twice, in the hammerhead lineage. Cope would not be happy with this. Right? It's it's they they got bigger than they specialized into smaller ones. The smaller sharks may be able to invest more energy into reproduction instead of growth, which is right, one of the right, hypotheses. Right. And then in the neogene, just before we get into our modern day, 23 to 2 million years ago, sharks are pretty modern. We have our modern groups. And then the most famous of the laminoid sharks, other than the modern great white, Megalodon shows up during this time. I've heard of that one. Yeah, this is, Megalodon was around 23 to 2.6 million years is the largest shark we've ever identified. Estimates go between 40 to 60 feet long with jaws that would have, when opened, gaped eight feet wide with teeth (laughs) that could grow up to 15 centimeters long. Big shark, estimated at 25 tons. Now, at this point, of course, the Paleogene, not so much, but by the Neogene, another group of marine interlopers has appeared. Yes, The whales, perfect for feeding Megalodon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now, the grouping for Megalodon is not one that has a a definite, you'll see it often as Cacaridon Megalodon, but there's also been research that has suggested it is Cacaricles Megalodon. Right. And so it it is either with the Megatooth sharks or Great Whites. And it was actually originally thought to be ancestral to great whites, but we saw that it is not. Uh, great whites are more closely related to mako sharks. But it very likely had a similar feeding structure from the tooth and the evidences of the tooth marks on its victims. So very like an active predator potentially using ambush strategies like great whites do. And then we get to today, where sharks are still awesome, not 60 feet long, but Still awesome and dominating everywhere from under ice seas to tropical to temperate to up rivers and everywhere in between, basically. So they've been going strong for quite a while. And one thing I think is fun to take away from this, this the story of sharks, much like episode two with Crocs, that old favorite comment that sharks haven't changed in 300 million it's not the the body shape is a winning shape not just for sharks for fish like all kinds of fish 
Uh, you see a very similar shape show up in marine reptiles and in marine mammals. So yes, that has remained the same. But sharks have gone through ups and downs. New features have come on, come and gone. New groups have come and gone. As with all groups, this has been a very dynamic evolutionary story. Yeah, looking at the sharks that are here today, there are a little bit over 500 species. And including the fossil record, there have been over 3,000 identified species. So, yeah, so far. they are Yeah, so far. They are quite successful, but as you were saying, it's not a straight line and it's not as cut and dry. It always irks me a little bit when I see things that's like sharks have been around for 400 million years. It's like, well, their their family photo album might go back that far, but like those weren't <laughs> <Yeah>. sharks. <laughs> it's, like, eh, it's like it's like kind of not quite like today. Well, it's like t- dinosaurs have been around for over 200 million years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They haven't it's, always been the same kind of dinosaurs. Yeah, it's it that that makes it seem like if you went back 400 million years ago, there would be a tiger shark just swimming around. And yeah. No, they didn't. They would. You would not have recognized the quote unquote sharks that were swimming around back then. They different, they would have been different gills, different mouths, eel like bodies. And nowadays they are still very diverse, but share those those key successful features that have allowed them you know that have survived through those multiple lineages to today cool group of fish yeah. for as far as fish go yes yeah you know cool what? group of fish not bad well well done fish you done good with this one and that's where we're gonna wrap things up there's tons more i could have talked about there are notes i have yet to touch on because sharks are a big group yeah <laughs> so if you want to hear more about sharks, we'd be happy to hear from you. Let us know if you were if you enjoyed, if you have questions, if you want to hear more specifically about any groups. We'd love I'd love to dive in, let's be honest. I'll be the one that ends up doing the fish episode again. <laughs> I like that Will got to aquarium a bunch in this episode. Yeah. It was your, fun. your aquarium educator came out. It did. I know. It was it's fun. I, it's all of this is gonna my jobs are helping each other now, which is fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you'd like to contact us, you can use all the typical means. The links will be in the description. Feel free to check out the blog post for plenty of pictures and further links to extra information. There's a lot of cool stuff to read up on these awesome ancient sharks and ancestors of sharks. And Thank you to our listeners who suggested this incredibly complex group of animals, Lydia, Amanda, and Jonathan. It was a lot of fun. Feel free to check us up on Patreon if you would like to contribute. Oh, don't forget about that Q&A. Look for the submission form on the Twitter, the Facebook, the Patreon. Give us your questions. We'll answer them at the end of the year. And we'll release another episode in two weeks. And thank you guys so much for listening. We'll, We'll see you around next time. Check in with us then. And... Until then, uh, safe swimming. I, I use that joke, but you're safe swimming anyway. You're more yeah, likely to be killed by a cow vending machine. You're more likely to be bitten by a New Yorker. I'm going through all my stats. <laughs> you're, more, you're more likely to be bitten by a vending machine than, than a shark. Bye, everyone. Excelsior. Excelsior. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. 
The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.